Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Welcome to the latest edition of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek. Saqib Ali is producing the show, and we've arrived at that moment. Uh, it happens four times a year. We wrap up a major, and in 2024, it's our first one at the Australian Open. Yannick Sinner coming back from two sets down in the final to beat Daniil Medvedev. And uh, in the women's final, Arena Sabalenka, uh, with no drama, no fuss, uh, after you know a, a, a tough and, and uh, emotional semifinal against Coco Goff, strolls through the final to repeat in Melbourne. That and much more in our Australian Open review show with in-house uh, consultants, analysts, Andrew Burton, and the coach, Mert Ertunga. And as we welcome you both in, let's just start. Before we get into Center and Sabalenka and the rest of the stories from this past fortnight down under, Mert, you know, you were there, uh, you were coaching, you have some firsthand observations and experiences. We'd like to know a little bit more about them. So the floor is yours, Mert, as we thank you for returning to our show. Oh, thanks, guys. I'm delighted to be here always at Tennis with an Accent. Uh, yeah, my, my, my player, Zeynep uh, Sönmez, uh, she qualified for, or she her ranking was high enough to to get into Australian Open qualifying, and uh, she's had a great uh, 2023. Uh, she's been on the right. She was outside top 500, actually, about a, a little, little over two years ago, if I'm not wrong. But um, and then since the beginning of 2023, when I started working with her, she was mid 300s and she went all the way up to into top 150. And uh, and uh, just um, for the Australian Open, and she was in the 160s, I believe. And she got therefore she got into the tournament and it was her third slam of her career. You know, she the Wimbledon qualifying was her first and US Open qualifying was her second. And now this one, her third consecutive, but her first three. So for her, it's all new. And uh, I'm super uh, proud of uh, of everything that she's accomplished. Great, uh, great person. Uh, and uh, she's been working hard and I feel like she deserves it. But she didn't win the first round in the, in the previous two slams. So and you'd always like to take a step forward. And so we decided to come to uh, to Australia uh, earlier. Yeah, in fact, uh, by the end of uh, 2023, in other words, like uh, the, the 27th or 28th of, uh, of December, because she also signed up for uh, WTA 500 Brisbane tournament, which was uh, her first WTA 500 experience. And she got into it, in, you know, with her own ranking in with merit and uh, and she qualified. She beat uh, the seventh seeded player and uh, Heather Watson and, the top seeded qualifier, Sasnovich, top 100 player, to get into the main draw. So in her first experience, she got into the main draw and she lost to Clara Burrell, first round of main draw, in the process. So although it was a great tournament, in the process, she suffered a stomach tear. And then it happened actually in the second round of qualifying. So she played that match and the next one with it. Then we moved over to Australian Open. And uh, but her uh, uh, and she we literally did not practice for about five days after Brisbane going into Australian Open qualifying, and um, 
because the tear has had gotten worse. But uh, she, you know, Zainab said, "Look, you know, I'm going to play. I'm here to play, and uh, this is one of the things that I admire about her." Um, and um, so we, so she stayed all business. Then we had short practices, a couple of days leading up to the drawing, to the draw. So she basically went into the match, our first round match, with about two hours of play under her belt in the last week. But uh, anyway, so she drew Xiao Di Yu, and uh, we decided that her being unable to serve because of the stomach ter tear, that she was going to toss the ball lower and hit slice serves and just put the ball in play, etc. And uh, she went out and played like that, and um, and she won her first round. So that was her first uh, qualifying win ever. And then she goes and beats Olga Danilovic, second round in three sets, four six six one six one, and um, and then loses in the final round of qualifying to Lulu Soon, uh, six two in the third set. And um, uh, it's 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 hard for me to explain here in, in words what she actually accomplished in front of uh, everyone. everyone who watched there were a lot of turkish fans that came and watched too but um you know she fought through pain uh she stayed focused on the on the task she won she came back from set down to beat danilovic 6-1 in the third despite major pain in her stomach there was a point uh in the match where she actually could not start the next point and started crying and got a time violation for it but you know then went ahead and started the point anyway and um you know it's just it's uh, to 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 watch someone accomplished accomplished firsts in her career while being handicapped by um, a serious pain. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, you cannot be prouder than that well, as, as a coach to watch that. So, you know, we, we left and uh, we came back and she's recovering still, but, uh, but it was a great experience. And I'm again, I'm super proud of Zainab. She's, she, she, she deserved every bit of it, but uh, Australian open, great experience, you know, wonderful place. Um, no, no wonder why it's called Happy Slam, and no wonder why players are uh, uh, are it's the players' favorite tournament. I mean, they, everyone's super nice. You're treated well. You, you, the, the the site is unique in that you can walk by the river to get to the site uh, from where you're staying if you want to. If you don't want to take the transportation, uh, the the facility is incredible. There's a whole underground metro city. Uh, that you can walk and then get to the courts, all the show courts you can get to from underground. And uh, the players are treated well, a bunch of uh, gyms and uh, just just great all around. It's, 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 uh, it's definitely ahead of the other slams. Hey, Mert. Uh, I guess you can't really teach fight as a coach, can you? There's a lot of stuff that you, that you can work on, but, but actual competitiveness and, and, and dealing with adversity. That's something that it's very hard to coach into somebody. Yes. And uh, I've always known that she was a very good match player. And um, we worked on uh, this, this past 12 months, 13 months. We've also worked on keeping the uh, mental density. I don't want to say intensity, but rather density, uh, you know, the tunnel vision dialed in type of thing uh, up throughout the match. And uh, she's uh, uh Look, when you're uh, when you are when you have clutchness built into you, uh, it's a big plus, and it and it's a big plus for someone who's coaching also. And uh, Zainab has that quality. You know, she's a uh, she'll fight, and she's she does she doesn't make excuses. She she she's played matches over the last twelve months where I know she was in uh, either really ill or she had a certain type of pain 
but uh, nobody ever knew. She didn't talk about it. She, uh, you know, she still went, went out and won matches, tough matches with that. Lost uh, the tough ones too, but I never heard her once because uh, you know there are also cases where people where players will feel a certain pain and the and the whole surrounding will know about it. And uh, this was uh, this was this is not the case with her. You know, she's just um, dialed in on the task at hand. And um, you know, I love her for that. That's 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 just great. That's great to 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 be able to coach someone like that. And you know, sometime Matt is going to segue us into talking about some of the the big televised matches. Yeah, I but... don't want to bore you guys with the qualifying rounds. You know, <laughs> That's no, what but I'm we're not bored. Say. Believe me, this is yeah. really fascinating. Yeah. But still, I mean, one of the things that we've talked about um, in the last few months is. Yannick Sinner and where he is on, you know, making it towards the top of the men's game. And and some of the thoughts that we've had is that he comes across as someone who's committed to a process rather than particular outcomes. And so long as he's doing what he's supposed to be doing, he's controlling the things that he control, he can he can control, then his coaches are going to say, well done, whether he comes off the court a winner and a, or a loser. And I'm interested in how you think about, you know, the the coming year. Hopefully, Zainab recovers rapidly and is is able then to start working more on the things that that she feels and you feel that she needs to work on, rather than just recovery. But but how is she doing in terms of of process and the targets that you've got set for 2024? Well, you you just nailed it in the coffin with that word targets, and uh, I'm a big believer in micro targeting in other words we need to focus on everyday practice and uh and preparing for matches on micro targets such as maybe uh, improving your backhand cross court drop shot or improving your forehand down the line acceleration or being able to get under a heavily sliced ball and hit it you know hitting a heavy topspin or maybe maybe learning or learning or improving hitting inside out slice backhand on a low short ball that you have to run forward or a high one-handed backhand volley classic way rather than the two-handed swing volley these are the targets that we 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 uh we focus on and one of my main um uh principles is that you need to focus on little details like this and the bigger picture will fall into place by itself I am not a fan of saying be be top we be top fifty by next year or be top one hundred by the end of twenty twenty five or you know reach top ten by the end of that that kind of time limited targeting not only puts you know the, not only loses the focus on details that you have to do to get that accomplished but also puts unnecessary pressure on the player. Not only from uh, from the from the people around the player, perhaps, or even from the media, etc., but also on the player uh, themselves. You know, they if they have these types of target effect. If you take care of details, the rest will come. Now, it may it may come in six months, it may come in three months, it may come in twelve months, or it may come in two years. But the bottom line is, uh, if you if you set targets with times like this, then you would need to call your season unsuccessful. Uh, when the, when that time comes and you haven't reached that target, and I can give you concrete examples of those. You know, there's a WTA player right now who who said, if I'm not top ten by the end of 2023, I call my year unsuccessful. 
she made incredible strides. She she had a great year. She's not top ten. Did she have an unsuccessful year? I don't think so. But uh, but but by 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 you know by the standards she, she set herself, she did have an unsuccessful year. And I just believe that uh, I, I just believe that you con you concentrate on details like this, and you end up. Uh, and you end up read the, the rest of the, the the rest of the stuff takes care of itself. It's kind of like building a puzzle. You don't uh, look at the thousand puzzle pieces from standing up from the top and put the puzzle pieces together all together at once. You have to start from the corner. You look at the picture. There's a blue spot, so you put all the blues aside and you start to you know putting the blue pieces together. Put that on the big puzzle and then and then try to complete the rest. And that's how you you know by concentrating on details you create the larger picture. And that's. That's kind of the philosophy that uh, that I try to instill in the, in, who, in whomever I work with, and it, and that has worked well with Zainab so far. We've been, you know, we set up a game plan, and we've been trying to fill up the uh, the holes need, you know, needed to accomplish that game plan. Well, congratulations to her, and congratulations to you as well for obviously um, you know, having a positive impact. So it's a great job. Thank you. Thank you. All right, you know we're gonna we're gonna move to the to the men's final and the men's uh, tournament in just a moment. But Mert, I have a question for you about Zaynab. You know, you mentioned that with the stomach tear, um, that she couldn't really serve for power. She'd have to hit slice serves. Did she and you learn anything in terms of you know? Wow, you know, playing off pace tennis throws throws a curveball to a lot of opponents. You know, they're expecting regular pace, linear shots. You know, hit with a normal speed like did that add something to her game did it create an epiphany in terms of you said she's a good match player did this make her an even better match player actually it's ironic that you say that matt because that we she used a serve that we've been working on developing all year long in fact we started working on that slice serve a, a long time ago and our goal was to eventually have that as our second serve one that curves and stays low and uh, among other types of serves too, not just that, but uh, also you know sometimes use it as an off pace serve in the in the middle of serving some hard first serves. And uh, who would have thought that it would have all the all those practices would have come in handy in this situation where we were actually forced into using that serve continuously. So well, what we've learned is that uh, uh, it's a good thing that we we practice. In other words, we. We ended up using something that we worked hard for, but not with the intention of what we used it in the tournament. But you definitely had an added tool in the toolbox, and it certainly made a difference. And and I join Andrew, I mean Sakib, myself, and Andrew. We all congratulate you, Mert, uh, for and Zainab for your progress, and and wish you the very yeah, best. Twenty twenty four continues. Thank you. I think all the larger credit should go to Zainab for getting the job done. Uh, and I'm not sure, saying this absolutely. to uh, you know I'm not saying this to uh, to like for some sort of false oh. modesty, but uh, I think uh, like me and uh, you know we have another uh, there's another person on the team, a third person who's been taking care of uh, her physical conditioning, and she's been a, he's been a mental mentor to her, Mehmet Bayrakta, and uh, you know we're just kind of she's the one driving the car, and uh, we just kind of jump from the back seat from the we just kind of open the back door and jump in. And uh, try to guide her, and that's. But uh, she's the one driving the car, definitely. Well, Yannick Sinner was driving uh, his uh, Italian sports car to a first major championship, and of course, Darren Cahill now uh, wins a uh, 
another major title with a with a notable player. You know, he lifted uh, Leighton Hewitt and Andre Agassi, late stage Agassi, to the top. He wins a, a French Open title with Halep, and uh, and uh, now he wins uh, the Australian Open and guides Yannick Sinner to the pinnacle. And you know, before we came on air. Andrew was talking about how, you know, trusting the process is important. You might not always have the results. Sinner, of course, losing that epic battle to Carlos Alcaraz at the U.S. Open a few years ago, losing to Novak Djokovic after being two sets up, definitely learned some lessons. And like those growing pains, those tough moments, he really cashed them in at this Australian Open with the mature semifinal and then the resolute final against Daniil Medvedev. So let's start with you, Mert, uh, from your coach's perspective, you know, in terms of what made the difference for Yannick Sinner. And also, you know, the, the main thing that people were telling me on Twitter during the match and right after the match is that eh, Daniil Medvedev just ran out of gas and he played all that tennis and it caught up with him. Undeniably, that was a factor, but how much of a factor should it be like, was it just the fatigue or is, is this a much more complicated story? Would definitely like your perspective on that, Mert. Uh, do you want me to stick to uh, just sinners development in general? Just, just what happened uh, in terms of like Medvedev getting tired in the final match. Take you, it wherever you, you want. Both. You're driving the car now. Take it okay. wherever you want. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to stick to what happened uh, in the final match uh, today. Yes, I do think um, um, endurance was an issue with Medvedev, but I do not believe that's the main reason for the match to turn around in the third set. I think that became a m major issue from mid-fourth set on into the fifth set. And uh, yes, he was tired, definitely. Uh, he was asked about this in the post-match post -match conference, and he said, uh, you know, did, did, did something happen differently? He said, I don't know, but... Uh, if if there was a change, I would think I would like to think that it's more you know it has to do with my physical state than my mental state or something to that effect. Um, but what I do think happened is um, is is that you had the Medvedev who came out and I think took everyone, including Sinner and his coaching box, by surprise with the type of game that he put forth. He he came up, started serving big. He uh, he returned big. He uh, went to the net. He volleyed incredibly well. And uh, we had a version of Medvedev on the court that I don't think many of us have seen before. Now, I, I, I feel like we've seen glimpses of this version once or twice, rarely. You know, when, when for example, he beat uh, Novak in the final of US Open in 2021, I think for about a set, we saw this version. Also, when he played Nadal in 2022 Australian Open final in the first set, we saw a little bit this version of where he takes the initiative and goes after it. Even in the in the 2019 final that he lost to Nadal, where he came back from two sets to love to two sets all, I think in the third set we saw a little bit of this version where he's uh, taking the initiative and coming in and uh, taking balls early. But otherwise, no, this is not how he plays. He returns from the backboards. He usually parks three or four meters behind the baseline, if not more, and just rallies, gets a lot of balls back. And uh, you know, frustrates his opponents, et cetera, et cetera. Returns well, but he's not—he's not an attacker. And he came out, and I think stunned everyone. And you could see that uh, Sinner was completely out of sorts; didn't know uh, what to do, how to handle it. And um, 
and he started making a lot of mistakes. So it was a case of where Sinner faced something totally unexpected, and uh, and Medvedev played in, you know incredible tennis, and it didn't help that Sinner did not serve well. He served a very low percentage uh, first serve in the first set, and that allowed Medvedev to 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 nail the second serve returns. But in the second set, Sinner served well. You know, he went up above 70% in the first serves. But it still didn't work because I think from, uh, from uh, you know, beginning of the second set to 5-1 for those six games, in my opinion, Medvedev played space tennis, an incredible level of tennis. And, you know, it's there's not always something that a player can do. You know, sometimes the other side plays so well that you try different things, or even if you don't try different things, they're just going to beat you. And that's the, you know, that's the, that's the pattern that we were in at that time. Um, I'll let Andrew chime in here and then, and then I, and then I can continue after that because, you know, that I think little, some things changed after that, but go ahead, Andrew. Well, I wanted to reinforce what you said, Mert, um, that you're absolutely right, both in terms of uh, Medvedev's uh, approach to the match in the first couple of sets uh, for me, a turning point was that uh, was what happened after that five-one game. So we can pick up the story in in in, in, a, in a little while. I'll I'll pass the talking stick back to you. But what I the reason that I I wanted to come in here was that I had a similar impression when I was watching the um, the Turin World Tour Finals final between Sinner and Djokovic, where. My impression watching the match was that, that that Yannick hadn't turned up and that he he just made life way too easy for Novak. And then I actually rewatched the match and, and and actually went match charting point by point what was happening. And basically Novak played out of his tree for about a set and three quarters sort of came back to earth a little bit right at the end of the second set, but he won the second set and match was over. So best of three, that, that happens. But we were playing best of five. So this time around, uh, Daniel went up 5-1, but then was broken back. He had an insurance break. He was able to serve out the second set. So he's up two sets to love. And... Is the match going to change? Is is Daniel, uh, you know, going to convert in straight sets? Well, let's pass the the baton back to you, so you can you can keep going there. Yes, and and uh, Andrew, you're 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 completely right. And uh, yeah, best of three, best of five. What a difference that makes. I mean, look at the semifinal scores and the final scores from from the men's side, you know. But uh, okay, so uh, you know, at five one. Then there's that break, like you said, and then then there's another game for Sinner. And I felt like from 5-1, or more and more from 5-2, all the way to the end of 6-3, and then starting the third set, I felt like Medvedev came back from, came down from Milky Way Galaxy to, to Earth's atmosphere. In other words, he was playing completely out, out of his mind, outclassing uh, Sinner, but he's but he didn't go all of a sudden to he didn't have a bad sequence. He still kept a very high level of play, but not just the not the level of play that he put forth before. And and what I'm saying there is, I don't know if you've noticed. I um, you know maybe if they ask his coaching team, then they may they may go into more detail, and maybe I'll turn out wrong. 
But I heard from his coaching team constantly from the beginning of the first set when they realized how aggressive Medvedev was being. You stay aggressive. You take the net away from him. Stay aggressive. Go for it. Go for your shots. Play liberated. You know, these these kind of shots, these kind of advices and commands kept coming from um, from Sinner's box. And you would think, well, you know, they started saying that, but he lost the first set and then he loses the second set. Why do they keep saying that? You know, and, and, like, shouldn't he change something? And then if had Sinner lost the third set, there would have been probably huge criticism for Sinner saying, you know, why didn't you try something major different? Why did the coaching box not say something original, you know, to change the to change the flow of the match, et cetera. But I think they were onto something. You know, they they felt like if Yannick if if Yannick kept his level high, his level of play high enough, that Medvedev was not going to stay at the level that he has he he has played the first set and all the way up to five one. I, I I didn't I I was thinking there's no way Medvedev keeps this level up. You know, there's sometimes your opponent plays so well that there's not much you can do. You just have to hope that you stay poised enough, that you keep your me- mental density high enough, so that in case they drop a little bit, then you can maybe catch up with the match. And then when when and then that's what happened in the third set. So now we are going one one two two three three four four in the third set, and all of a sudden you're seeing. Medvedev's favorite type of rally where he hits the ball backhand cross court back and forth with his opponent that's one of his favorite type of monotonous rallies his grip is uh, by the way built for that you know his left hand on the grip is a little bit higher almost to the throat of the racket so he's able to bring it around and hit that nice cross court backhand even on the accelerations but then you you started seeing some long backhand cross court rallies where Medvedev was the first to make the error and then you also started seeing Sinner place his first serves better and gain some free points. You know, the ace count was two first set, one second set, and then four, three, and four. So, so he served clearly started getting some clean points. And I think what happens in a situation like that is all of a sudden the third set, Medvedev or the opponent starts thinking. And, uh, and they start making some mistakes and they realize that they're not, and they come down from that level where they're just hitting everything freely. And you didn't see Medvedev coming in, attacking everything from that point on. You actually saw 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 him retreat to his comfort zone, which is long rallies, getting a lot of balls back. And then Sinner started controlling the rallies better. And when he stole that third set, and, and when I say stole, is it was not uh, you know it was not clear that it would be Sinner's set until the very end. He took that third set, and the fourth set began. He had a good first game, first couple of games. Then you knew that the match was at 50-50. And now Medvedev is no longer the free-hitting, free-flowing person that uh, or or thinking man that he is. He's going to retrieve back to his comfort zone and do what he thinks he can do best. And I believe that's what happened. And uh, Andrew, I talked too much, so you go ahead. Well, no, again, we saw the same match. Um, I I like, you know, he came down from the Milky Way galaxy into the the stratosphere. He was, I, I thought, Medvedev... Didn't play at a bad level at any time in the match. I I, I don't think Sinner played at a at a bad level. Although I think that early in the second set, he began. You know, mentally he was thinking, "What can this I possibly is not do? Going well? What do I need to do now? I don't want to do what the world's worst tennis commentator John McEnroe does, which is <laughs> psychoanalyze the players after every time they miss a shot." 
Andrew, may I interrupt you just very shortly? I'll get I'll get it right. I, and and I do and I and I would refuse anyone saying that he didn't try anything different. He actually did try some drop shots. He did try to come to the net, but they it didn't work. He, Medvedev was just you know had an answer for everything. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's all right. And 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 I think that as as the match went on, Sinner adjusted his return position. You said that that he he improved the targeting of his serves. I think some of that may have been down to the explosiveness that Medvedev had in the first couple of set, sets started to leak away. And one of the things that I saw, you know, particularly by the fourth or the fifth set, was that Medvedev was having a tremendous amount of success with angled shots, particularly with a flat angled cross-court forehand that he was taking closer to the baseline and and really punching the ball cross-court and Sinner was having all kinds of issues with that and then by the time you got later into the fourth set and the fifth set the the power and pace that Medvedev had early on was down he was still hitting the ball in that direction but not with the same speed through the court. So Sinner was able to take the ball and 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 stay in the rally fairly comfortably at that stage. So maybe micro adjustments, the drop shots, I don't think work terribly well. Um, but I think that, that Sinner had the confidence not to not to fall apart, not 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 to go for lots of low percentage shots. And if you go all the way to the end of the match, um, I think it was 1530 uh, in the final game, then 30 or 4030, there's a there's a fairly decent rally, and then Sinner hits a down the line forehand winner. And and I've watched that three or four times from different angles, and you absolutely see that Sinner prepares to go for a winner. It's not a hiding to nothing it's not a i hope the ball goes in it's that i've played this shot 3000 times in my junior career as a young professional as i've been working with it on the practice court here's it's the time to get that labor. shot he hits yeah. the shot he hits the winner and he he wins the championship so a big part of the story for me of the atp final is sinner's calmness under pressure allowing him to get past an opponent who played um, absolutely superbly for two sets and then quite well for three sets. And I believe Daniel said, yes, I won some five setters, but I didn't win them against opponents who played as well as Yannick did. Yes, yeah, he did say that, and and also, you know, you have to. We have to remember too. I, I agree with your uh, with just about everything you said, uh, Andrew, and uh, and and in fact. Um, he had, he did have chances to break in the third and even in the fourth set you know there was a moment at 3 all 30 all where sinner for some reason the one time he tried to he didn't go for that cross court rally with daniel although he was starting to win all those points he tried to go down line risky shot missed it and it was 30 40 but then sinner comes up with with a huge ace you know it was, yes. that was a big moment and uh, and, and that was just, know, that was the first time he yelled in the entire, you know, he'd been pretty silent. You know, there's yeah. no commands, but he absolutely pumped his fist and he yelled after that. Point. Yes, because that was a moment where his belief in 
coming back was starting what well, you know might have gotten bruised and the that ace came in very handy and i think he served two more big serves actually to to win that game so medvedev still had chances to 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 win the third and the fourth said why because he still kept up his high level of play just not you know just not the milky way galaxy level but 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 it is true that i from the middle of fourth set forward i would say especially all these rallies that went 25, 30, 35 shots. I mean, there were some grueling rallies and hats off to both guys. I thought those rallies five or six times during those rallies, I said, okay, they're going to miss this. Oh my God, what a shot. They're going to miss it. Oh my, and no, they didn't miss it. They kept getting it back, getting it back. But, but Sinner at the end of those ended up winning all of those. And that plays, you know, that, that plays a trick in your mind, not only on your body, but in your mind. And the, and that combined with Sinner serving better, and you know Medvedev losing confidence in the in his uh, in his game plan that that it may actually not work, that it may get it may slip away from him. Uh, all those combined uh, created the situation where Sinner actually went ahead early in the fifth set. A lot to process, and you guys are doing a great job of processing it as usual. I, I think one of the things I'd like to get at a little bit is. And, and, you know, you might not like this framing, but it is part of sports commentary and sports analysis, not just for tennis, but any sport. We talk about, you know, should player A have won this match? Should player A have, uh, you know, sealed this lead, protected it? What, what did the did player B, you know, just make a comeback? And, and it really had less to do with uh, the losers failures, more with the winner's successes, um, because, you know, th there is the undeniable reality that Daniil Medvedev has been in a lot of major finals, and more specifically, he led Rafael Nadal by two sets in the 2022 Australian Open final, and, you know, I think most tennis fans and analysts would say that Medvedev let that one slip away, so I guess what I'm after is, here is, you know, how do we compare this to 2022 in terms of you know, a two-set lead in a major final and Danil Medvedev couldn't close the door. Was this, uh, is this equally his, as much his failure as it is Sinner's success? Is it mostly just Yannick cleaning up his game uh, and and also Medvedev coming down from the mountaintop uh, as Mert has articulated? How do you come down on that particular uh, comparison with 2022? So if I can, I'll come in on first on this one because I want to compare it to two other matches where a player has come down from, from two sets down. So the first one is team against Verev in the US Open final where I don't think there's any question that nerves played an immense part in Zverev failing to close out uh, his first major in his first major final when he was up a break in the third set, and then by the the end of the match, both players were tired. It went to a final set tie break, but you could wind them round a peg on a guitar and play them as a high E string. They were both so nervous by the end of that match. So that that to me felt like nerves played an an enormous part in the outcome. Then you have another one, which is the final between Tsitsipas and Novak Djokovic and Roland Garros, where Tsitsipas was playing pretty well, went up two sets to love, 
But the sense I always had there was that if Novak gets a break in the third set, it's match on. And that happened, and Novak got a break in the third set, got a break in the fourth set, got a break in the fifth set, lifted the trophy. And there, again, I didn't feel necessarily that um, Tsitsipas donated the title to Novak. It was more a case of someone who had won so many Grand Slams who knew how to adjust his game if he if he found the key and put it in the lock that Novak was going to come back to win this one. So then if, if you go to today's match, my take, and, and I think Mert and I have, have come down very much in the same place, Sinner wasn't playing badly during the first two sets. Daniel wasn't playing badly in the third, fourth, and fifth sets. For me, Yannick Sinner had to go out and win that match and was strong enough, mentally tough enough, had the resilience, had the game plan, made the right kinds of adjustments. Um, you know, if if I get a chance to talk to Daniel, which is extremely unlikely that I'll I'll have a chance to do that, but if I ever get a chance to do that and the, the topic comes up and it's extremely unlikely the topic would come up, but I'd say, hey, you didn't lose that match. Your opponent played well enough to win it, but you've got nothing to reproach yourself for. I, I would agree with uh, everything that uh, Andrew just said. This, uh, uh, you know, you asked about the um, the rough uh, uh, comeback on Medvedev. You know, I I, I think that's a bit different. Uh, you know, here here the center knew to keep his level up, and I think his coaching box did too. And they just you know felt like there are there are certain cases where you just have to wait for the right opportunity to creep into the match, and and he did that and. Sinner would not have won this match by any means. In fact, would have lost it pretty easily if if he got uh, desperate, and if if and if he felt like I'm getting killed out here, I got to try something outrageous and went for low percentage shots and lost. And and this happens a lot to players, by the way, even to top players. But Sinner did not get into that frame of mind. So, you know, hats off to 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 Sinner here. I uh, just like Andrew said, it's a uh, he he's the one who kind of uh, you know. Uh, Took it, took it apart at the seams, and you know, tried to pull the match to, towards his uh, side of the spectrum, and, and he finally did. In in the in the in the Rafa uh, Daniel final, I feel like Daniel let that one slip away. Yes, I do feel like he he let that one slip away, and uh, and he also lost his head. You know, in in the fifth set, he 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 was mad at everybody and every anybody that was around the referee, his box, etc., and. Uh, and um, and 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 quite frankly, he was against. He was playing against a guy, whom you should not do that because that guy made a career out of winning matches that he had no business of winning at one point during the match. And uh, you know that's that's just that's just Rafa's specialty to to be able to win those types of matches. But uh, I also thought that the Medvedev in that match didn't have very high didn't make high IQ decisions. He's a smart guy, but he didn't he didn't make on court high IQ decisions in that match, but that was not the case today. In fact, what I saw today, I uh you know, I'm I'm not on board with all this talk about what a great genius uh, Medvedev is on the court. I've seen him play, I've seen him lose, I can point to matches, important matches in his career that he lost because he didn't make adjustments because he's stuck with something because he's too stubborn 
he's stuck with something too long, etc. I can point to two or three matches from the top of my head. And uh, so I'm not on board with this, with him being super high IQ. Uh, and then he also gets mad and loses his discipline sometimes. He'll try to serve in volley on a second serve on an important point because he's because he's angry. You know, this these are all things that happened in the past. But but today, I mean, that that was not the case today. I thought he played. He started with a great game plan. He stuck with it, even when when uh, he start he lost the third set and was going to you know in the fourth set. He still tried to control the rallies, even though he went back to his comfort zone and uh, he and he fought until the very end and uh, and 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 I gained a whole new appreciation for him too because to be honest with you I I didn't know he could pull this off I, I didn't think it, I, I didn't know he could volley like this for two sets maybe he can do it for three or four sets I don't know because he stopped taking balls really early and coming in but he he hit some incredibly high degree of difficulty volleys from low, I'm talking low backhand volley drop shots. I'm talking low volleys landing right to the corner to push the opponent back right when they were running in, thinking they're going to he's going to drop the volley. And he, you know, he 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 had he showed skills that I didn't think he had in this depth in his toolbox, and which then makes me wonder why why didn't we see more of this before? I mean, he's he's had matches where he needed this. That he could have he could have turned turned the match around and and um, and maybe perhaps you know won the match where he could have used this type of tactics and didn't. So um, anyway, but uh, you know I'd be interested to see how he uh, proceeds from this for this point forward. Mert, I think that's a tremendous uh, set of insights on Medvedev, and, and it does give rise to the larger conversation of yeah, why don't we see the mo more textures? from Medvedev's game and you know let's let's recall the 2019 US Open and really his that second half of the 2019 season when Medvedev really rose to prominence and he, he was just winning one hardcore tournament after another you know through the summer and then his run to the US Open final and then through October I mean like those three months Daniil Medvedev was just tearing through the hardcore section uh of the, of the ATP tour he showed a lot of game back then. Like he showed he could do different things, but you know, as you alluded to, he he does have that instinct to go back to his comfort zone to be a little more conservative with his positioning and tactics. And it does bring up the point that if he showed more of his game more often, he wouldn't get wouldn't might not have gotten roped into those two five setters preceding this final and would have put him in a better position to win. So you know, if you're part of Danil's team, if you're part of his coaching staff, and I'll also, Murray, obviously I want to get you on this, but then uh, I'll, I'll want Andrew's insights as well. But, you know, if you are Medvedev's uh, coaching staff, are you thinking, you know what, maybe we've emphasized too much of, you know, do what's do what works, do what you know best. No, no actually you need to step out from that and you need to be, less in your comfort zone and need to be able to show your opponents more looks so that, you know, so that they don't become so that you're not too predictable and, and your opponent doesn't become too settled and established in the back of the court, the way center was in the last three sets. Uh, you know, it's, it, you brought up his uh, previous five set match and, you know, against Zverev, for example, I, uh, he did get aggressive. Uh, and that's, I, in my opinion, that's what kind of turned the match around after he lost the first two, the first two sets against Zverev. So, and and again, 
you know, same with, uh, so we've seen glimpses of this, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I can point again, take, take his loss to Carlos Alcaraz at Wimbledon. You know, he, he, he just kept on uh, repeating the same thing over and over again. And, uh, you know, I, you, you would think that, uh, perhaps he's just not, you know, that's not his comfort zone that he still has, uh, he doesn't feel comfortable enough to do it, et cetera. But, and that's what somewhat what I believe because what he does, he does well and he beats 95% of his opponents. So it's not like his existing game is not a successful uh, type of game. He's, he's, he's a top three, top four player in the world. And uh, he wins, he wins with that game, uh, you know, with the, with parking way behind the baseline, getting a lot of balls back and staying consistent, et cetera, et cetera. He wins. So it's that little extra that he can, but you know, today I discovered that he can do the other thing very well. You know, it's not just an addition to his game. He actually has an asset. You know, if he can volley like today, if he can take balls early and come to the net like today, his transition game is an asset. It's not just an addition to what's to what's what already exists. You know, he's he's not just adding a room to a high quality house. He's adding a that's a that's a high quality room to complement the already existing high quality house. So then in that case, you would like to use that room as much as possible also along with the other rooms. And that's that's the way I see it. I mean, I, I'm I'm surprised that he can do it that well. And uh, I'm surprised that he hasn't used it as much until today. So I think that a couple of things that I'll I'll, I'll put on the end there is that one thing that we may want to think a little bit about is this being situation specific, that the amount of five set tennis that, that Daniel had played and playing six matches in a Grand Slam tournament may have gotten him to, with his coaches, draw up a, a game plan that was different to the one that he might have played against Sinner had he gone through the tournament dropping a couple of sets. He, Daniel Medvedev, just dropped a couple of sets. He might have gone with his plan A rather than his plan B. And then we'd never have known that he could have done this. So so there's that. Uh, the second thing, though, is that, um, you know, if we, if we pan out to the wider ATP, um, then a player who I expected to make the quarterfinals, who's done extremely well in Australia in the past, is Stefanos Tsitsipas. And I had expected him to you know, make a decent fist of a quarterfinal against Novak, and he didn't reach the quarterfinal stage. Um, and the, the sense I've had of Tsitsipas for the last couple of years or so is he's not really developing his game further. I, I've not seen him working on stuff where I can say, okay, all right, his backhand return has been a weakness, but he's shortened the swing and he's, he's using a Federer type slice to, you know, bring an opponent in. He's showing us something new going back to, you know, how we opened the, the, the start of the conversation, Mert working with Zainab and saying, okay, here are some of the things that I want you to work on that, are targets for you to improve your game. We know it's a cliche now that the big three of the ATP who dominated the sport for much of the last two decades 
were always working on something. They were always adding to their games. And perhaps this will spur Daniel to do that. But when I look at the, um, you know, I, I look across the ATP through this tournament, one of the things that there's really been only one major surprise to me, which has been how Yannick Sinner was the player of the tournament through getting to the final, uh, not dropping a set, uh, playing against Djokovic, absolutely dominating Novak on a court that he hasn't lost to since dinosaurs roamed the earth. And, you know, making his first final, then, as we've discussed at length, going down two sets to love, but having the mental fortitude and the skill set and the endurance to be able to come back to win it. The big revelation about the ATP has been Yannick Sinner. But for the rest of the players, you know, I haven't had a sense of of anyone except for maybe one or two lesser known players really stepping up. It's been kind of business as usual. With that in mind, uh, Andrew, uh, let's look at the players who lost, uh, you know, you know, before getting to the final, who were unable to make the final, like the two biggest names that didn't make the final. Novak Djokovic and, and Carlos Alcaraz. Any particular observations on where those two men stand after the Australian Open? Uh, you know, obviously Djokovic dealing with older age, and you know, like he did look like an older tennis player. It's one of the rare times that's happened, but like this is this is Father Time. You know, Federer had to do it. Nadal is in the middle of it uh, still. Um, so there's there's that angle to consider with Djokovic and then Carlos Alcaraz, you know, the, the well has run dry temporarily, of course, like we, I don't think anyone thinks this is a long term thing, but it's still notable that after the Wimbledon title and that battle with Djokovic in Cincinnati, um, it's been hard for Carlos Alcaraz on tour. So your impressions of you know how the landscape looks for for those two men coming out of Melbourne. I don't think it's time to hit the panic button for either player's career. Um, I don't think Novak lost because he's older. Uh, I think he had a bad day at the office. And one of the things that that caused my eyebrows to go up was was how meek some of the unforced errors were that he hit in the semifinal against Sinner. Uh, you know, they 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 weren't balls that were missing, you know, with the close call going up on the screen and it, you know, it misses by uh, a couple of millimeters. He he was missing well long. He was missing balls in the net, um, 54 unforced errors and able to scrap out um, a third set, but earn no break points. The father time comes for everyone to me is 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 where your body just you accumulate wear and tear, you accumulate injuries with Federer. It was, it was the knees uh, with Nadal. You know, he, he's just got dents everywhere um, and couldn't make the Australian open this year after trying to, to come back and playing some matches in Brisbane. So I don't think Novak is near that stage. Um, Alcaraz made the semis in the world tour finals. He made the quarters here, but 
Zverev is is a player who I think gives him fits. It's a, it's it's not as good a matchup for Alcaraz as some of the other players on tour, and he came out very flat for a couple of sets. Was able to win the third set, but then Zverev took the fourth set reasonably comfortably. So, you know, the season's just starting. I don't think either Alcaraz or Djokovic, you know, are going to fire coaches or say it's back to the drawing board or I have to to switch to hitting a one-handed backhand. I, I, I you know, I, I think that they'll just mark it down and say, yeah, okay, that didn't go to plan uh, onto the next tournament. Andrew, that's such great uh, analysis of 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 what uh, of what or where Djokovic and Alcaraz stands. I I agree with every single word that you say, and uh, I think that Matt, I think your question was where does you know where do these guys stand now? Um, I still think Novak is standing at the top of the men of of men's tennis. Doesn't matter that he lost in the semis here; he's still the number one player in the world, and he's still the player to beat. The when you know no, that was said about Novak in. Uh, when he lost to Daniil Medvedev in the U.S. Open final, oh well, now okay, now there's Medvedev. Where does it lead? Well, he was still he still stayed number one. He lost to Alcaraz Wimbledon final last year, and uh, even I myself caught myself saying, okay, now there is Djokovic. There was Djokovic and everyone else, and now there's Djokovic, and then there's Alcaraz, and then there's everyone else. Well, that turned out to be wrong. Djokovic is still here at the top, still winning titles, and um, and it'll be the same after this. Um, I don't see. Djokovic is still the name to chase, you know, even even though he didn't win this tournament. Just like Andrew said, he had a bad day at the office, uh, and um, but he can he, actually he according to him he had bad two weeks at the office here. You know, he said that uh, he never felt very comfortable. But um, you know, we'll see. Come come the next uh, big tournament, Masters one thousand tournament. I'm sure if he's there, he'll be the fa- favorite to win that one too. So no, they're still there, and in fact, I'm glad that it is so because. Um, Personally, I think what Sinner has been able to show this tournament or what Alcaraz showed uh, at Wimbledon last year and all all through last year uh, gives me a great hope that, uh, you know, for the next two or three years at least, tennis is going to have some very, very high-quality rivalries, you know, in, in, in big tournaments. And even after Novak's gone, because at a certain point he will be gone, uh, we, we're going to have a good, um, you know, if we have Sinner and Alcaraz leading the pack, that's still not bad at all. I would be I would be happy with that. You know, as those guys improve their game and everyone else tries to catch up with them. You know, I'm of course I'm speculating here what's going what could happen in the future, but I feel a lot better about the next uh, six to seven years on the ATP side than I did say three or four years ago. Yeah, and no, I'll I'll throw Holger Rune into the mix. Yes, uh, he's he's had a pretty ordinary six months or so. Made the final in Brisbane. Um, didn't didn't make the quarters here, um, but I think his ceiling is extremely high, and it it will be interesting, you know, when we write the the history fifteen years from now, uh, assuming that we're still doing podcasts. I don't know if I'll have any hair by then, but when we write the history of the of this generation over the next fifteen years or so where Runa, Alcaraz and Sinner stand, because I think they're likely to be the sand, the standouts of players born in the late 90s, early 2000s, or 
or generation Felix, as I as I call them. And one thing that I had to note at the end of the match was that with Alcaraz having two titles and Sinner now one major title, that's three for generation Felix and the combined generation Grigor, generation Nick have two titles, one each team uh, and Medvedev. So, you know, Mert's absolutely right that the the prospects for the next five years or so are, I think, better than they were three years ago. One last point, because it, because it, it it's kind of tangential to some of the matches that Andrew mentioned. Uh, thank heavens we got best out of five set matches. You know, the, he mentioned the, uh, the Zverev-Alcaraz match, routine first two sets, but then we have a very interesting third and fourth set. Djokovic uh, uh, center, semifinal, super routine first two sets, totally one-sided. But then there's a match point saved in the third set, and then it goes to a fourth set, and we have a spectacular, at least uh, intellectually challenging match on our hands. Uh, same with the other semifinals. Zverev wins the first two sets fairly handily, but uh, enough time for Medvedev to turn the match around. And then we have today the men's final where a player dominates the first uh, set, the first two sets almost, and the other player just hangs in there and finds a way to turn it around. And, oh, you know, again, thank heavens for uh, for having five sets, best of five on the men's side. And this is possibly a moment for me to uh, to come in with, with my continuing suggestion, which is that, for me, women's tennis uh, should not stand second to men's tennis. Um, that these are, you know, excellent accent athletes, excellent tennis players, and I would like to see best of five for the WTA and the ATP. And my suggestion would be that you have four Grand Slams a year. You have on odd years the Australian Open and the Wimbledon and Wimbledon, the ATP play best of five, the WTA play best of five, Roland Garros and the US Open, the WTA play best of five, the ATP play, play best of three. And then you switch it up on even years. So you play best of five for both tours um, in all of the, the, the four grand slams but you don't have to uh, change up. You don't have to go best of three in the first three or four rounds, best of five for everyone in, in the round of 16 or the quarters or, or beyond. But you 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 bring best of five. And what so many people say is this is the glory. This is the beauty of best of five. And then you go, huh, so why is it that only the men play that? There haven't been good answers for that. And I think I've got a good one. Yeah, uh, Andrew. Yes, I mean, I, I feel like you're trying to get me going there because it's something I've been also. Uh, so you're speaking to the choir, yeah. And uh, you know, again, the two semifinals, the two men's semifinals, were a total of uh, seven hours and above seven hours and thirty minutes. That's seven hours of and thirty minutes of eye drop in time that men's tennis had to promote itself, and um, the women's semifinals. And final combined were were barely over five hours, and that's seven and a half hours in two matches, semifinal matches. Not adding the center uh, Medvedev final, 
with that, it's over 10 hours of men's tennis that were laid before people's eyes globally, you know, millions of eyes if they wanted to drop in versus barely over five hours of women's tennis that was, uh, you know, put put uh, put forth for the eyes around the world. That's potential new fans who may drop in for a little bit because how, how do people become tennis fans? They either pick up the racket and start playing themselves, so therefore they grow interest, or they see someone that they want to support, or they happen to, you know, drop in on, in France while watching the, the tennis match and they sit down with them, and that's how you grow your, you know, the, the sport grows its fan base. And um, and I I have no doubt that men's tennis garnered twice as much new fans for itself than women's tennis did over this uh, over these last three days because they had twice the amount of time for new eyes to drop in, and this happens uh, almost every slam. And women's tennis is always a prelude to the main act, which is men's finals on Sunday. So I would like to suggest that we switch the finals every other year too for example australian open next year should have the women's final on sunday men's final on saturday you know not, not have but uh, but yes it needs to be you know women need to have uh, women's tennis needs to have the same chance to garner new fans as men's tennis does and in this under this format that's never the case men's tennis will always get more new fans with each slam than women's tennis will under under the existing logistics yeah if you if you if if structurally you make women's tennis the undercard for men's tennis then you you you're saying that one side of the tour should get more respect than the other side of the tour and maybe in the 1950s or or you know as part of the the conversations that happened before the battle of the sexes maybe you know maybe that was the way that people talk 50 or 60 years ago but it's the 2020s so can we do something about it yeah definitely uh, but there's there surely there's there are more sinner fans and medvedev fans added around the world over the last 48 hours than there are uh Wen Zhang fans or uh or Sabalenka fans because just more people got to see the men play it's a really good segue into the women's tournament and I would just simply make the point on the heels of everything that both of you are saying that you, know, you had a, a a battle of you know comparative unknowns Zhang and, and uh Yastremska in one semifinal, and then you had a blockbuster matchup, Goff, Sabalenka, and the other. Both of those kinds of matchups weren't given the time or space to breathe in the five-set format, and one wonders what would have happened if they both had the five-set format and the potential uh, to take on more textures. You know, two players who weren't expected to be there and two players who were fully expected uh, to be there. But now let's uh, deal with the women's tournament and those two semifinals and the ultimate outcome. And so on one half of the bracket, we had the players who were expected to advance, the players who upheld Andrew Burton's you know long-running theme of WTA stability. And then in the other half of the bracket, we didn't have anything like that at all. We had total chaos. And of course, Goff and Sabalenka were the only two top 10 seeds uh, to make deep runs at the tournament. Uh, the other eight were 
that were mostly cleaned out pretty early. And uh, Andrew did tell me, uh, at, you know, at the beginning of the fortnight that he did not expect any of the players seated five through eight to play up to their seating to make the quarterfinals. And Andrew's prediction uh, was proved to be correct pretty early. If he had put a, a, a parlay at a betting site, he would have cashed that ticket uh, right away. He would not have had to have waited until even the middle weekend uh, of this uh, fortnight. So what do we make of the stability from Goff and Sabalenka, but the lack of stability from, you know, Rabakina, uh, Sviantek, and, and Jabir, uh, uh, Vondrosova, other uh, prominent players uh, not, not going deep. Where, where do you think the, what do you think this says about where the WTA is and where the WTA might be headed? So Arena Sabalenka, I think, has made something like eight of the last 11 semifinals and eight of the last 11. And, and, and I think probably one of them, Wimbledon, she was barred from competing in because of the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And Wimbledon for a year said that, that Russian and Belarusian players weren't allowed to compete. So Sabalenka has begun, and we'll see if she can keep it up, to do... What really only Serena Williams was able to do in the last decade or so, which is pretty much ink her name in on on, on the semifinal draw sheet. Uh, so good for her. Coco Goff, this was the second semifinal in a row. Um, in the US Open, she was able to get past uh, Sabalenka in three sets this time. She went out in two closely fought sets. But I think Goff is, is now someone who we're going to probably start saying quarterfinals and beyond becomes a level of expectation. And she's, she's still got so much upside. Um, you know, there's still elements of her game that she's, she's going to work on. And, and even the greats, you know, 25, 30, Sabalenka is working on, on, on elements of her game. On the other side, um, you know, my, Big surprise was Sriantec going out, but arguably the the discovery of the tournament for the WTA was Naskova, who who just took it to her uh, in the second and third sets, and did what very few players, notably Arena Sabalenka, can do, which is take the racket out of a very good player's hands. So. I, I don't know if there's any shame there. Um, Rabakina, um, y- you have a, a tie break. What was it? 22, 20 that, that she went out uh, to Blinkover, I, I believe. So they were surprises. The other players less surprising. Um, and one of the things that continues to be, Really interesting, I think, for the for the WTA is you've got players like Bianca Andrescu, who wasn't able to compete here. Uh, neither was Karolina Mukova, and Naomi Osaka. This was her first um, big tournament since taking time off, becoming a mother, and by mid-year or so, uh, perhaps two or even three of those players are back in good shape and back in good competitive form. 
And then suddenly you have lots of, of potentially very strong players. Sophia Kennan went away for a while and was a, a reasonably tough first round matchup for Sviantek at this tournament. So there, there are lots of players who could be uh, challengers in the last eight or beyond. I wonder if we're going to see, as well as Sabalenka and possibly Goff, whether we're going to see some of those come up above the others and, you know, a, a Sviantek, um, you know, possibly a Rybakina, I'm not sure about the others, whether they'll establish themselves as people you say, huh, you know, they made the semifinal. Well, that's what I expected. Andrew, great coverage of, uh, of just about everything that happened. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm with him. But then there's also, you know, people like Ange Jabeur and Maria Sakkari who went out very unceremoniously here in this tournament, but who are still who can still be a force on, on the tour. But uh, but I, I would like to uh, uh, second you or echo what you said about Noskova. Linda Noskova is uh, is one of the purest ball strikers out there, and uh, she was in Brisbane and she also made it to the semis there. So she, she kind of made an entry or made kind of a signal that she was on her way, although. You know, I nobody would have expected her to beat Shriantek, but she's a pure striker. I know everybody, everyone was uh, mesmerized with uh, Yastremska's run to the semis, and and they, people called her, you know, a pure ball striker. And yes, Yastremska hits a ball, um, can can and can strike a ball very well. But Noskova uh, can hit a ball, can hit a target as small as a dime if you put it anywhere on the court, and and he and she can do it with some. Some serious speed, warp speed nine, as we would say, Trekkies like uh, Andrea nine. But uh, <clears throat> she can, she she's a really hard striker, and that uh, and just like uh, Andrew said, she took uh, Shiontek's racket out of her hand. I mean, some of the balls Shiontek could not get, and that's a little bit of a of a product of Shiontek's extreme forehand grip. She could not get her, you know, she just could not get her racket around racket around it early enough to be able to strike her regular forehand topspin back and. She ended up missing a lot of those because Noskova's ball was coming with some heavy um, artillery, and uh, that's the, the so that's a great win for Noskova. But I I can't really say I did not see it coming at all. I um, she's she's working with a very very good coach, Tomas Krupa, and uh, I think uh, Noskova has uh, great things ahead of her. So um, I, I you know Brisbane. And Australian Open combined, to me, she is the one who took the 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 biggest, you know, the big biggest steps towards uh, the next level. You know, the part of the discussion about three set tennis versus five set tennis is simply that, you know, in a three set match, uh, you know, a gun battle, you you get outplayed for two sets as Sviantek did. That's it. You know, there's the the margins for error are undeniably smaller than in the men where you have more space you know matches can breathe longer and you play two bad sets you're not done you have that third set to play the other player has to win that third set against you so the margins are smaller in the women uh, we we know that's the case and with that in mind you know we we saw you know more chaos in the tournament with all these uh top 10 seeds losing in in week one so within that context gentlemen i'll, I'll put this to Merck first and then to Andrew, you know, 
if you lose a three set match, like you don't want to think that the sky is falling, but I imagine that, you know, for some players, an early loss in Melbourne would rate as more concerning than it would for others. Cause like with Fiontech, like, yeah, you know that she's the real deal. She's already proven it. She has the four majors on two different surfaces, you know, something that Naomi Osaka doesn't have. Fiontech's good on hardcore and play. So like, you're not going to be too overly worried about her coming out of this, but for other players who lost, Mert, is there any player or two players perhaps who you are concerned about or you, or for whom you think concern is especially warranted coming out of this Australian Open? Um, maybe maybe Maria Sakari, you know, the in in that she, uh, she you know her performance has been up and down for for a little while and. Um, She's a hard worker, super nice girl. Um, I don't know her personally, but I know a lot of people that do. And, uh, you know, she, she, she works hard and she could take it uh, hard that she's not maybe getting the results that she wants. But um, in my opinion, she can uh, she can get uh, she can get her if she can get her form back, that she she's the kind of player. She's the kind of athlete that could uh, take a couple of steps further than where she has been before. But uh, yeah, I mean, I am concerned that she's lost. Uh, she's had some bad losses uh, over the last uh, ten to twelve months, and um, I just hope that it doesn't continue. I mean, I would like to see her. When I say I'm concerned, is I'd like to see her right back on track and be a top ten player, top five contender, contender in big titles, et cetera, et cetera. I think I think she adds a lot to to the game. She's very entertaining to watch. Andrew. Well, I think one of the players that we've we've thought sooner or later she's going to give herself a chance to be there on the Saturday is is Jessica Pagula, and she was in the the five to eight seed range, so I didn't expect her to to make the quarterfinals. Um, just because I, I I just had this sense that that this was the way things were going to go, but I think going out in the second round is something that she'll you know fairly you know fra- fairly straightforward defeat to the French woman Burrell. That's one you think she'd probably say mm, uh, I'd I'd like to have that one again. Particularly if R- Rabakina isn't there on the other side, then. Uh, you 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 had this half of the draw that that opened up partly because um, players like Rabakin and Sviantek, um didn't progress, but then also because players like uh, Pagula just didn't step forward um, and and give themselves a chance to be there at the business end. How would you guys uh, compare the Goff Sabalenka match? Uh, witnessed here in Australia to the U.S. Open final. I think you could certainly create some uh, similarities, draw some common threads with both in that, you know, the match was fundamentally on Savalenka's racket and uh, Goff needed to make Savalenka put a lot of balls in play. Is is it as simple as Savalenka put more balls in play this time relative to New York or were there some other nuances underneath the surface that maybe tennis fans might not see or appreciate different dynamics 
you saw, you know, on a, on a more subterranean uh, level that were at work in this match in Australia? Both were close matches, but I, I think, I think we have to take into account, I don't know to what degree, the fact that one was played in New York, uh, in, in the U S where Coco golf in Bill Jinking national tennis center, Coco golf is, is a superstar. You know, the fan fans want, fans want, 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 want the, her autograph. They follow her everywhere and she's in the United States. She feels comfortable versus Australian Open Rod Laver Arena where Sabalenko already has proven that she can win. So I think that has to be, that has to account for something too, you know, and uh, the, the, the New York versus uh, New York Arthur Ashe Tennis Stadium versus Rod Laver are, um, is, is a factor in both of those matches, I think. Uh, and, um, and I also believe that, uh, well, there's, you know, Perry Reba was there in, um, in, uh, at the U.S. Open, I don't know if that factors into it at all, but uh, he was not here on uh, Coco Golf's side this time. He was with Chin Wen Zhang, who went to the finals. Actually, uh, those are just some nuances that are perhaps not on court tactics related. Well, yeah, they are actually, but uh, but in any case, um, you know, those are just some two nuances. I think the first one, the former, definitely had had something to do with the outcomes, you know, the fact that it was a uh, U.S. versus uh, uh, Melbourne. Uh, but um, other than that, I thought they were both very, very close matches. They both played their A game. They stuck to their plan A in, in, in one of them. Coco Golf was able to outlast Sabalenka, and this one she wasn't. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. Okay. Uh, you know, one other topic I'm certainly interested in getting your guys' uh, opinions on. You know, Yastremska came through qualifying, made the semis. We all, we all remember a couple years ago at the U.S. Open, uh, you know, Emma Raducanu uh, and and the run that she made, and of course that final against Layla Fernandez. And and you know, in the nine majors since their meeting in the 2021. U.S. Open final, Fernandez and Raducanu have gotten past the second round one time combined. Um, and that was uh, Fernandez at the 2022 Roland Garros tournament. And so Yastremska's run brings up that point of, you know, randomness versus sustainability. And so is there anything that you see in Yastremska uh, and, and also that that tells you Anything about, you know, what uh, the future might hold for her? Is it too early to say? And measure that against, you know, what we've seen from Fernandez and Raducanu the past two and a half years. I know that Raducanu has been dealing with a lot of injuries. So that, like, obviously that has to factor into the conversation. Um, But it does remain that, you know, what happened that one time in New York haven't had any real sustained success since then and that's kind of like a holding up a mirror to what Yastremska is now facing. You know, can can Yastremska make sure that this is not just a one-time moment, but it's the start of something? Uh, your impressions on both Yastremska and also, you know, what uh, Raducanu and uh, Fernandez are, are going through right now. I'll answer very shortly for for myself. Um, I, I still think what Raducanu has done is far more. Um, eyebrow raising than uh, than than what the Ostremska has done. Even if Raducanu lost in the semifinals that year, for her to reach the semifinals, 
would have been tremendous, tremendous. And not to downplay Yastrzemska's success by any means. It's great. It's a great run. But Yastrzemska has been a 100, top 100 player for a while. She's reached the, the second week of a slam before. Uh, I believe she played fourth round at Wimbledon or US Open, one of them. And, and, I, and I think she's reached the third round on uh, one or two other occasions in the slams. So, you know, for when she, when Yastrzemska made it to the second, third, fourth round, quarterfinals, it wasn't necessarily something super new uh, to her. And um, But again, that doesn't erase the fact that she's it's one of the most formidable runs that we've seen uh, for a qualifier in a in a slam, but uh, I still don't think it comes near the uh, the shocking uh, effect of uh, Raducanu winning that uh, that U.S. Open coming from qualifying. No, I have to agree with Mert there, uh, and both uh, Raducanu and uh, Fernandez were beating top seeds in the run to the the final. They they caught lightning in a bottle. Um, as Mert said, uh, Yastremska has gone to the second week before she, she had a couple of third rounds and a fourth round in 2019. Uh, that's not from memory. I was quickly consulting my iPad while Mert was, was going over her career. Uh, but yes, she, you know, she's, she's an experienced player although one that you would not normally expect to be at the quarterfinal stages and, and beyond. And that's, you know, circling back to one of the themes that we keep on, on, on putting out here that, uh, that players in the WTA seem to rise and fall with, with regularity and the, it, it's it's unusual to see players tournament in tournament out at the semi-final stage um since uh Serena Williams was the dominant player in the 2010s there are players like Angelique Kerber who uh come through win grand slams and then they 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 can't really establish themselves for sort of six or seven years or so, and I think we're waiting in the WTA, not you know not for a, a group of fifteen or twenty Slam winning players, but but I think what we're waiting for is is players who over the over the course of a career a seven or eight year have a seven or eight year span where. You see them, okay, they were in a couple of finals this year. They were in a major final the year before. And they're uh, they recognized globally. Yeah. yeah, they're recognized globally. And, and they, 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 they carry the torch for the game over a long period of time. And a player who might have done that, I think, was, was Ash Barty, who, who was moving into the stage in her career where she'd sort of worked out what her game was and had worked out how to win major tournaments. And then having worked out how to make, win major tournaments, she said, all right, that, that that's good enough for me. And I want to move on to the next thing in my life now. And okay, good for her. But for the women's game, there's a gap 
where a, a small Australian sized figure with a really good slice could have been. And, and so um, I, I, I would love again to be having this conversation three or four years from now, hopefully with the same participants, hopefully with Mert, you know, coming from, um, you know, a, a win in a tournament in one place and, and quarterfinals in another place. But, you know, when we're talking about why can't the men's game get itself together because it's so random, whereas the WTA now has these great rivalries and these players who are carrying the torch year in, year out for 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 18-year-olds making their way into the game, they say, okay, that's the player that, that I think that I can emulate. Yeah, we we had we had a for a moment we had a dream situation. You know, I think it was 2019 or so, and I may have said this before, but we had Bianca Andreescu won the U.S. Open. We had Naomi Osaka on top of her game. We had Barty uh, in there, and we had Shiontek, who basically announced that she was coming to the top, or at least to challenge the top. And that was a very promising outlook. You know, back back then you had four players from different continents, different. Um, you know, it just looked really attractive. And then Barty stops playing, you know, quits, uh, retires. Um, you know, Osaka takes off and uh, and then Andrescu gets rattled with injuries. And then it's just kind of, uh, you know, then we found ourselves in this situation that Andrew described. And, you know, hopefully this can be built back up again now with uh, with Sabalenka, Shiontek perhaps, and a couple of others, Coco Golf, and, and then we have, uh, you know, globally recognizable figures showing in a, showing up on uh, big stage matches and i think that's that's a that's a good way to grow the sport i mean it's great for us fans who follow tennis week in week out to have variety and to say oh it's great it's unpredictable i like it better that way there are always new things it's surprising but uh to to uh to attract the masses of fans casual fans or non-fans into more hardcore fanship you need recognizable faces reappearing on big stage matches over and over again. Everett Navratilova, Steffi Graf, Monica Seles, the Williams sisters. You know, those are the those are the moments where women's tennis had a lot of fans. You know, Hingis Davenport, the Williams sisters, Kornikova, that 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 stage. And um uh, it's the same with men too, when you have top rivalries, you know, long term high quality rivalries at the top, that's when you garner more the most uh, amount of fans. So you know, that's that's why it's uh, it's good to have these recognizable figures reappearing in uh, big stage uh, late tournaments. Final question, gentlemen. Uh, you know, after the year's first major in Melbourne, you know, we then look ahead to the rest of the season and how this first uh, big fortnight uh, has reshaped the landscape. Um, just speaking personally for myself, and just offering an example of how this fortnight has you know changed my outlook i mean i'm interested in the next sinner alcaraz match particularly if they are able to meet as a at a major i'm also going to be interested in how sinner handles clay because he's you know been a steady guy on hard courts and like if he can figure out clay uh at a higher level that that certainly would put something new into the mix so like that's my submission for you know how i think the this australian open has reshaped uh, the tennis season on the men's side. Uh, what are what are your impressions of how you know you had a, a, a 
obviously you had a sense of what you were looking for and what you were interested in in 2024 tennis before the Australian Open. So how have these two weeks uh, affected that outlook in any way? Well, let's start with uh, Andrew and then go to Mert. Well, maybe maybe I could deal with the ATP side and, and throw the WTA to, to Mert. On the ATP side, I, I think I said very early on in this conversation that I saw very little that surprised me uh, in, in this tournament. Um, I was surprised that the Novak came out flat. I was surprised that Carlos came out flat in the matches that they both lost, but that happens occasionally. And, and it's, it's not, it, it's not a four tremor on the Richter scale, let alone an eight tremor on the Richter scale. Um, I think one of the things that we wait to see as as long-term ATP fans is when we get back to clay, is Nadal able to go deep in one or two of the uh, the warm-up tournaments for Roland Garros and possibly put himself in a position to go deep at Roland Garros and then potentially in, in the Paris Olympics. I, I I, I felt a bit sad, not just as a long-term Federer fan, but in the season, the final season that that, that Federer really played, um, apart from the the one-off doubles at the Labor Cup, Federer was something of a shadow of of, of his former self uh, in his final real competitive season, and I I would hate that to be true of Nadal, but you never know the old father time thing. Um, there are a number of players who, who, who were coming through in 2022. So Francis Tiafo is one who I, I, I'd really, I think Francis can bottle magic, uh, on a tennis court, um, with his personality. And he's someone who hasn't pushed deep into the top 10 yet. So we're, we're, you know, the next generation, the generation Felix is pushing its way through. I do expect Holger Rune at some stage to to really rediscover winning ways. He's brought uh, Boris Becker into his, his coaching lineup. Um, but I won't, I, you know, I won't completely reshape how I think about the 2024 season on the back of the Australian Open because I think it was more, that's more or less, the way the ATP has been um, in in the last 18 months or so. Mert, what about the WTA? Well, on the WTA side, I think Matt, I'm going to stick strictly to Matt's question. I think he wanted to see what, uh, you know, what looked different, how the landscape looked different prior to Australian Open versus now, now that the Australian Open has ended. And uh, the only uh, two names that... Uh, that uh, I'm now looking more forward to, to seeing how, you know, how they do later um, uh, in the year are for, for one thing, Noskova, you know, I'm not, I don't know what, uh, what these two weeks Brisbane plus Australian open will do to Noskova's confidence and career. But I think she is, uh, she would be my, one of my top three candidates to, to have a career defining year. In other words, move from a, a top 50 player into perhaps a, a top 20 top 15 type of player or even maybe finish the year top 10 i'd like to i'd like to follow that and the and the other one is chin wan jang 
uh, reaching her uh, her her final in the slam. To be honest, I am not that surprised that she reached the final of a major. Um, I am surprised that she reached it this early. You know, I do this crazy thing on my on my blog where every four years we, we you know I invite people to predict the top two players on the men's and women's side in four years. And uh, the the 20, 2023 edition was just four months ago, and you know a couple of hundred people sent in their predictions again. And me, along with three others, had uh, Chin Wen Zhang actually as number two. One of them had it as number one in 2027. So it's not uh, it's not that uh, she. I don't believe in her potential. I just didn't think she she'd go to the finals of a major this early. But now that she has, I'd like to see if she can join the. Uh, the group of elites already, you know, and, uh, but I don't know if she can do it on all surfaces, but I'd like to see her follow up on this uh, runner up uh, uh, performance at a, at a slam. And uh, let's see how she does in the other slams. But otherwise, you know, I, I, the the one thing that really broke my heart was to see Svitolina leave the court crying, you know, when, when she stopped, because uh, she is a surprise, you know. She 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 came back at a much higher level than I thought she would after that long uh, that long a stop. Naomi Osaka, I thought, although she lost to Garcia, I watched that match live on um, there in Melbourne on, on Rod Laver Arena. I thought her tennis was great, uh, thinking that she hasn't she hadn't played competitively over uh, over a year, um, and uh, so yeah. You know, those are the names that I'm particularly interested in to see what they do in the next three or four months. But otherwise, I'd like to see Coco Golf and Sabalenka at the final four again in at least two out of the next three slams. And uh, I'd like to see uh, Shuantek again. I think we will in the semifinals at least of French Open and see who, see who, who can challenge her on clay. And, uh, you know, th those are those are kind of my... Uh, my wishes for the uh, for the WTA side for the rest of the year, gentlemen. It's always great to wrap up a major tournament with with each of you uh, a a veritable buffet table of uh, insights, analysis, takeaways, memories, moments uh, on so many different levels. It's always uh, great to get you know your wisdom and your perspective on a major tournament and there was no shortage of things to talk about. So couldn't have asked for a better way to wrap up the 2024 Australian open here at tennis with an accent, Andrew Burton, Mert Ertwunga, the coach. Thanks so much for joining us again. And, uh, and Mert, all the best to you as you uh, continue your coaching in the 2024 tennis season. Thanks guys. Cheers.